Welcome to Senlightened, a podcast for those playing a supportive role in the life and education of a child with special educational needs. Hosted by leading special educational needs mentor Amanda Sokel, this podcast aims to guide and support carers, educators, and parents on the journey to help our little ones thrive. Hello, I'm Amanda Sokel. Today I speak with the assistant principal of a school which has allowed good teachers to shine. I think it's kind of about trusting the teachers to do the right things. And really, it's about sharing of information. I think it's just about allowing those teachers the freedom to teach in the way that they're comfortable, that will get results ultimately. That's Leighton Bright, Assistant Principal at Rochester Independent College, a mainstream school that caters successfully for a number of students with educational needs that might not be met in other mainstream schools. There is a focus on personalisation, from the interview process to building relationships between the school staff, the parents and the children. The team effort and considerate approach is reflected in the students' well-being and academic accomplishments. It's an inspirational story and shows how the right school environment can make the difference for children with special educational needs. Good morning, Leighton. It's great to have you today to have a conversation. Why don't you start by introducing yourself to our listeners, a bit about your current role and what you're doing? Yeah, of course. Um, Good morning. Yeah, so I'm Leighton. I'm an assistant principal at Rochester Independent College. I'm also the head of lower school and um, I'm also the whole college senko. So um, three rather grand job titles, but um, probably they all kind of mix into one really. My main responsibility, I suppose, is, is overseeing the students in the school from year seven to 11. But I've got kind of Senko responsibility for the whole college. So making sure that all students from year seven all the way up to year 14 with some kind of SEN uh, need are successful and get where they need to get to. I guess that keeps you quite busy with all those different roles. Yeah, I mean, the, the college has grown quite significantly in the last kind of six or seven years. So I started here in, in 2015. Um, I was employed as as the Senko, having previously worked as, as kind of an assistant Senko in a larger non-selective state school. In that school, I would say the role was was predominantly kind of a, an administrative role, really. I mean, a lot of the support and stuff was, was provided by external agencies and, and things like that. And, and to a certain extent, it was, it was, a, it was an admin role. But joining Rochester the role has grown. You know, when I joined, we had about 65 students in years 7 to 11. Um, Now we've got 140. So over the last six or seven years, you know, the the lower school has kind of really grown in size. And my role, although initially was just as as a Senko, as I say, and English teacher, it's kind of evolved from there, really. And we'll probably talk a bit more about this, but because of like the kind of the uniqueness of this environment that, that we work in, the role of the Senko is here has really grown and, and we do attract a lot of students with additional needs, albeit not kind of profound, I guess. Hmm. I mean, you do seem to have quite a high proportion of children with additional needs. Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, look, we've always said that we are we are a mainstream school. You know, we, we don't 
market ourselves as anything else. And, and our business here really ultimately is getting students the best grades in their exams that they can possibly get. What I would say is, is that we kind of find ourselves in a fairly unique position here as being a mainstream independent school that is not too formal, that is not kind of really burdened down with rules and, uh, and regulations, albeit, you know, we insist on good behaviour and that kind of stuff. But um, we've always attracted students who are unique, you know, in a way, and whether that be, you know, diagnosed SEN needs or whether that be students who like to have green hair or, or, or wear, you know, slightly unusual clothes or not kind of follow the crowd. So, yes, we, we do have, a, I guess, a, a high proportion of SEN students relatively, but we don't really see it as that. We don't really see it as, as them being SEN students in a way. We see it more as them being unique and, and it's our job to, to get these students who are looking for something a bit different to help them be happy and to help them succeed, really. So, yes, technically, uh, I suppose we've got a, a fairly high proportion of SEN, but to a large extent, our students with SEN don't present as students with SEN in our environment. And I think that's one of the really interesting things is that your environment does seem to suit a wide variety of students. And I guess you've got very small classes and a quirky kind of environment. But I'm interested, class sizes aside, what are the things you think could potentially be transferable into other schools that you're doing that are so successful? That's a great question. Um, I, I think that the, the main thing that we that we do here that, that you, you don't get in other schools because because you can't have it in other schools really is the kind of personalization, that kind of personal element, um, the relationship between that kind of, it's like a key triangle really between the parent, the school and me and, and, and the rest of the staff and the student. And if you get that relationship right and you're all kind of understanding where each other's coming from, you can kind of tailor things and make things work for students who would otherwise struggle. I mean, that works, as I said earlier, that works equally well for students who are hugely academically able with, with no additional needs or, or, no, or no SEN. You know, we've got students here who, who join us just to get the grades to go to medical school. We have students here who, who want to just get the grades to go to Oxford or Cambridge and things like that. Now, some of those students may have SEN, some not. So, again, it's kind of taking, to a certain extent, the, the labels out of it. it. It's kind of saying every student needs certain all students need certain kind of allowances and certain things to, to let them perform at their best. And I think that it's only through like a close relationship between the school, home and the student themselves that you get that. Now, we do we do certain things that help to ease that. You know, obviously, I would like to think we're a very accessible school in terms of if a parent wants to talk to me, they can at any time. You know, I put my mobile number on my emails, which sometimes I regret. Um, but uh, it's it's important that parents feel we're accessible. You know, at a lot of schools, it's very hard to talk to somebody face-to-face. Emails are fine, but in emails, tone can be difficult to judge. You either come across too formal or upset or, or complaining, when actually lots of parents don't feel that way. They just want a face-to-face conversation. Obviously, we've got the luxury of being able to allow our students to not wear a uniform, and we allow our students to call us by our first names. Now, 
a lot of people kind of initially are quite uncomfortable with that. And I think they, they feel, you know, that perhaps it's a sign of a lack of respect or it can uh, make the students behave worse or, or things like that. But actually, I think it works in the very opposite way. I know that having worked in the state sector, you know, members of staff are employed to stand at the school gate and kind of challenge uniform as the students come in. And, and this is no criticism of that. But for me, that conflict at kind of 8.45 is the very worst way to start your day. So we kind of bypassed all that in a way. I think that, I mean, this is a SEN related podcast. So if we're talking about SEN students in particular, you know, I have students who wear the same tracksuit trousers and hoodie five days a week. Yes, they might have five different pairs of tracksuit trousers and five different hoodies, but they're the same. There's one boy, and I won't name him obviously, he wears the same blue fleece and the same tracksuit trousers to school every day. He's got five sets of that outfit, if you like, but that's what he's comfortable in. It takes away those kind of sensory issues, I suppose, of, of a restricted blazer or, or you know, even in some schools they have to wear a tank top, a tie, that kind of stuff. So what could be adopted more in, in other schools, I think, is it's just more personalisation, really, and, and more a closer working relationship between school and home. I do recognise that in primary school, lots of parents have that closer connection to school. That You get lots of contact from primary school. You get lots of newsletters. You get lots of events. You're very much involved as a parent. As soon as you make that transition to secondary school, it's almost like the parental link to school is broken. Totally. And and I, I find that, Odd, you know, it's strange because you 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 play such a proactive part in your son or daughter's life, and then suddenly they go into a completely different environment, and you don't actually know any of the people who are teaching them. So, yeah, that was a very protracted answer. I suppose I should say, you know, the the main problem in like kind of increasing levels of personalization and closeness with teachers and that that kind of triangle that I think is really important is funding, and you know, state schools do not have enough money. What really needs to happen is, so this gets into a political rant, but what needs to happen if, if we want our schools to be better, we need to double the funding, half the class sizes, pay the teachers more and give the teachers some time so they can do that job that they want to do. You know, this is why people get into teaching, to help children. So, yeah, personalisation, closer relationships to home, I think that could really help environmental things within the school the uniform stuff like that that's not easy for a kind of larger state school to do because it could I guess cause problems although it doesn't seem to here interesting yeah and I think your your comments about the triangle the relationship between the parent the teacher and the child I've seen so many cases where that parent school relationship has broken down I think as parents of children with special educational needs, we're often maybe a little bit more involved or need to be more involved and can come across as pushy, potentially desperate, not knowing the answers, not knowing what support could be available or should be available. And sometimes that relationship isn't positive and things go wrong and so you you know you're always dreading the phone call and I think one of the things I've observed about Rick is that that's 
not the case. It's always been a very positive, and talking to other parents, they've said the same thing. What is it that you think you could share from an educator's point of view about how to do that better? Well, I think the, the main thing is to not not be, as a school, as an institution, you, your first response to a question or, or some feedback should not be a defensive one. I mean, I think, I think that too many schools, as soon as a parent raises a concern, they don't actually look inward at, at what they could improve. They look outward at the complainant or the person who's raising the concerns and kind of say, well, it works for these kids. So it must be the parent, it must be the student. I think it's also here, you know, a lot of schools just get given a list of 275 kids in year seven. These are the kids who are coming to your school. Yep, they might get school reports. They're not shared with the teachers. Um, There might be some very vague SEN information, like just a, a diagnosis, a label, which is fine. By its very nature, our admissions process involves a much more personal approach. You know, we have to have... An interview, it sounds very formal and it's not. I mean, you've sat through one, so uh, you you know. It's an informal chat. It's getting to know the parent. It's getting to know the student. You know, the students have to come to taster days, whatever point of entry they join us. And and we recruit kids throughout the academic year. Whatever point of entry they join, they have to experience some time at the college. They have to do some lessons here. We have to see that they can cope here. Now, again, state schools do not have the luxury of doing that. Normally, they offer one kind of taster day, transition day, for their year seven kids, and it's not enough, really. I think that what schools need to appreciate is that many, many SEM parents who come to see you are used to a battle. They're used to a fight. They're used to having to kind of get their point across, sometimes as far as going to court and going to tribunals and all this kind of stuff. So parents are also a little bit wary of schools. They're a little bit wary of what a school is going to say. Some parents don't want to share information. You know, some parents don't want to send an EHCP document or or an SEM report that was written when the student was seven and the student's now 11. You know, I, I had a student who joined recently in year nine and his EHCP document talked about the fact that he still has problems wetting the bed or something. Now, he doesn't. That was in the that was in the plan from when he was kind of six years old. The, the system does not favour students with additional needs. It just doesn't. And um, I think it's just having some empathy, really, as a school and understanding that the vast, vast majority of parents, they just want the best for their, their kids. They want a school that's going to work. And they're not interested in in criticising, but they just want to share their experience, really, and kind of tell you what would be the perfect school for their child. And I suppose what I always have to say to parents here is we do what we do. You know, we can't completely change. We can't do loads of additional things. We do what we do. For a lot of kids, it works. For some, it won't. You know, and it, and it is a lot of it is just kind of it, uh, bound up in honesty, really. I think that's very true. And you use the word empathy. And for me, that's one of the key things that all parties need to have empathy. Parents need to empathise with the environment and the school and the, you know, the constraints that the school's operating in. And schools need to empathise with the family situation. And I think if that's in place, that's a really good starting point. 
I think it's always important when I, when I have a conversation with a student who, I mean, you know, I talk to all kinds of students who come here, students who, you know, past the 11 plus, they've been offered a grammar school and, and I'm basically trying to explain why we're a better option. You know, I, equally, I talk to students who, who maybe struggle academically and, and the, the parents are terrified of, of not going down that grammar school route. And I, and I get all that. I went, I went to a grammar school. I, I, I've got nothing against grammar schools. They, they're great. In fact, I've got nothing against any other school. Every school tries to do its best. But I think it's about having an honest conversation with, this is what we can do. This is what you have to do as a student. And as a parent, you've got to understand that this may or may not work. And I think if, if everyone goes into that situation with their eyes open uh, with all the facts, then if things go well, brilliant. Uh, it will go well. They will get their GCSEs. They will get their A-levels here. They'll go to university if that's the route they want. Amazing. But if it doesn't go well, it's about having an honest conversation about it. And, and me not giving kind of parents platitudes, oh, he's doing really well. What does that mean? Me being honest, the parent accepting some criticism or some constructive criticism and the student actually being able to kind of look inwardly and go, yeah, you know what, I, I could have done better there. As soon as we lose that honest dialogue, that's where things can break down. And, you know, look, this is not some kind of educational utopia. We have lots and lots of kids, the vast majority of kids who join here go on and are hugely successful. They generally do better than they would do in other settings. They're very successful. They get to do all kinds of different experiences that they wouldn't do in other schools. But once or twice a year, we have some placements that don't work because, you know, however honest we are, however much we, we have conversations, sometimes things are not going to work. And that's kind of regardless of SEM. You know, it's not just SEN students that sometimes struggle here. It's all students because we're dealing with teenagers, you know, ultimately. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that I've observed is there's a real willingness to listen. And I think that comes from the genuine empathy that I've observed with your staff and the environment, you know, set up to allow them to listen and adapt and do things differently and not be tied down by you have to do it this way, you have to do it whatever, you know. How much freedom do your teachers have to cater for everybody's individual uniqueness? Yeah, that's a good question. I've worked in schools where teachers are expected to follow the same lesson structure. So you, you get a, a school kind of branded lesson plan and that is your structure. That is what you follow. That's how you deliver your lessons. If you're observed as part of a kind of appraisal or performance review, you have to follow that lesson plan. I can see the benefits in that in a bigger school. I can see that the, the consistency of it is good for the kids. I, I can see that. There are some schools, I think there's the Thinking Schools Trust, and, and they use the same kind of mind mapping techniques or a mixture of different techniques in every lesson. I can see that kind of logic. Here, I suppose, we've always kind of wanted to allow our teachers kind of autonomy in terms of how they teach and how they approach lessons. We, in the same way that we want our, our students to be allowed to be individuals and, and be themselves, we want our teachers to do the same. You know, we have some common roles and we have some common guidelines. For example, all mobile phones in the box at the start of lesson, a one voice policy. So when the teacher's talking, no one else should be talking, that kind of stuff. 
But basically, in terms of the logistics of a lesson, the progress of a lesson, we want our teachers to manage that. They're professionals. We trust them. That's why we've employed them. You know, if the teachers are getting good results, if the kids are making progress, I don't particularly mind if they're doing a starter for five minutes, a 10-minute task, an extended task, and a plenary at the end. I don't mind. If the results are good, then it's working. And, and I think that certainly last time our A-level results were published, we were topping, well, actually, we were second in Kent. I'm not going to say it was top because that's free advertising for them, isn't it? But we were second in Kent as an A-level provider, you know, as, and as a, as a non-selective school in, in Medway, something's working. So I think it's kind of about giving the teachers freedom, trusting the teachers to do the right things, and really, it's about sharing of information. So every Wednesday morning, we have, a, we have a briefing and we talk about particular students. We talk about particular needs. We talk about particular adjustments. And our teachers try their very best to apply that at all times. And 98% of the time, it works. Sometimes it doesn't. But um, I think it's just about allowing those teachers the freedom to teach in the way that they're comfortable that will get results ultimately. When it doesn't work, Leighton, talk to me a little bit about the things that contribute to that. Okay, so I, I guess it doesn't work when a student, it's behaviour ultimately. You know, we can accept students with a variety of needs, but when it comes to behaviour, we have to be able to trust students to behave responsibly, not just in lessons, but at lunch times, at break times. Look, all students are going to make mistakes at some point in their school career. It's going to happen. But we have to be able to see an effort to improve behaviour when someone's made a mistake. You know, and look, I know that some, some teenagers, you know, 11, 12-year-olds, they, they can act impulsively. They're children, you know, and mistakes are part of learning and of course it's not we're not like kind of draconian on that but I've got to be acutely aware that for every student who is here they're here for a specific reason and they need to make progress they need to learn they need to be happy so the main reason that any placement here fails regardless of SEN is students who can't behave in a kind of Basically, a nice. You know what? I always say, and it sounds really simplistic and kind of a bit banal, but I'll, you know, I always say to people in interviews, I don't really care how clever you are in the nicest possible way. If you're clever, amazing, good for you. If you struggle, that's a shame, we'll help you. But you have to be a nice, responsible kid to come to this school. You know, and I'll say that to your sevens, I'll say it to some of the sick formers when I'm doing those, those interviews occasionally. We can't have like lessons being disrupted. I can't have violence. I can't have bullying. I can't have nastiness because that's not why students come here, regardless of SEM. You know, I've got two boys at the school. One is in year 10. One is in uh, year seven. My oldest passes 11 plus, only just, if I don't mind me saying. I could have sent him to a grammar school, but I knew here that he would be safe. I knew that he would get to try loads of different subjects that he wouldn't usually do in other schools. I knew he could be himself. He wanted to dye his hair pink or something, which I let him do. Since I've got no hair, I thought, you know, I'll live vicariously through him <laughs> for a little while. Um, and he's loving it. You know, he's, he's up before me. He gets to school before I do. My youngest, um, he's in year seven. He passed his 11 plus quite comfortably. He could have gone to the maths school. 
And that's a good school. But again, it's about, I know that here, his lessons aren't going to be disrupted. I know that he's not going to be pushed and shoved around in the corridor. I know that he's not going to be kind of taking the mickey out of for the fact he's got ginger hair, you know. So it's safe. So it's any kids that come to this school and kind of abuse that freedom and are unpleasant, are mean, they're not the students that I want here. So that's the main reason why a placement wouldn't work. I've not yet come across a placement that has not worked due to lack of progress, for example. The only other thing, which is obviously a hugely growing problem, is anxiety. And, and mm-hmm. you know, um, certainly since COVID, this is, this is noticeable. You know, students are incredibly anxious, students who can't come to school, however many adjustments are made. And, and that, that's a growing problem, which obviously we were really worried about. Yeah, it is a massive problem. I'm seeing it all over the place, anxiety levels. Yeah. And I think that's an area, again, where your flexibility has really helped a number of students to re-engage with education where they were unable to do so for anxiety reasons. Yeah, well, I think my kind of philosophy has always been the lessons are running, the lessons are taking place. You know, on this day, these lessons are happening. So if a student can come to three of those lessons and they need a break, it's not the end of the world, that's fine. If they need to not do an afternoon a week for an early finish or something, that's fine. I would say the goal is always to have all of our students doing a full timetable. But, you know, in the same way that I might occasionally need an afternoon off work or a morning to work from home. Well, kids are the same, you know. Yeah. You know, the vast majority of our kids come in every day, they do a full-time table, they go home happy. But probably three or four, they need some time out sometimes. And I don't think in this day and age that's unreasonable. But obviously in, in, in a bigger school, that three or four kids may turn into 30 or 40 kids. And that's much harder to manage. Hence why, you know, we don't want to grow hugely. We just bought a, a pretty significant new building across the road from us, which was an old Peugeot garage. I mean, that's going to be brand new art provision, uh, music studio, film provision, some boarding rooms and stuff like that. But I think that our, our target probably over the next five years is to get to about 450 in the school. But that that's about it. I can't do what I do if I've got an extra 300 kids to look after you know so again it comes back to empathy doesn't it empathy and honesty really like making sure parents understand what we can do and and students understand what they're allowed to do and and working together yeah very true so final question for you if you were providing kind of advice to a newly qualified teacher or a newly qualified Senko what's the one thing you've learned that you would like to pass on I think you you can't do everything yourself when I took the job here as Senko I mean someone said to me the other day um I I work with Ian who's who's the assistant Senko now at Rochester it's a fairly new new position um and he said in his training course the the person said you're a Senko not a Sendu you know i.e you can't do everything yourself. And, and I, I think that's what you have to do is you have to let go. You have to, in a way, let trust. By all means, trying, 
prepare but trust your teachers to deliver your ethos across the school so you know our ethos at RIC has always been to be extremely inclusive you know to not to compromise standards so in our latest inspection report and um, you know it says SEM students perform in line with their non-SEM peers for me that that's a successful outcome you know um, that means that students with SEM here do not perform worse because they have SEM and then that's absolutely how it should be and I think that's nothing to do with me that is to do with all the teachers here who take the time to get to know their students and teach them in a kind of personalized way so don't try and do it for yourself you can't solve everybody's issues you know you can only do what you can do and you need a bloody good team of people around you to help you do that as well sounds like great advice thanks <laughs> thank you so much Leighton it's been a very interesting conversation today first ever podcast so ah well maybe one of many well you know new experiences as a 42 year old is, uh, is always a good thing <laughs> we're always learning <laughs> thank you cheers that ends this episode of Send Lightened with Amanda Sokel for more information and to contact Amanda, please go to community.amandasokel.com.